0: We all have times where we fail as disciples, and this is why the New Testament is such a relief to me. It's very honest, isn't it, in the portrayal of the followers of Jesus. It does not hide from the readers the vulnerabilities and oversights and misunderstandings and failures, the bungling episodes of Jesus' disciples. It's, It's very forthcoming. I find that incredibly encouraging. Because it turns out there were people who were following after Jesus who didn't always understand what he said and who didn't always respond the right way. And he loved them. And he loves us. The New Testament uh, is very honest about the failures of Jesus' disciples. Now, our failures have not been recorded for the generations of history to read and study. So it it turns out that to be among the twelve and for their failures to be known, uh, we're reading about them and we're looking at them and we're reminded uh, even tonight of some things that the disciples were getting wrong. Jesus wants to teach us through these disciples here in, in Luke 9 about Especially his suffering, but paired with that, the true nature of status and position in the kingdom. Who's really great in relation to the Son of Man and how should that be understood? Jesus has some difficult words for his disciples who had a certain understanding about things and assumptions about things. It made cultural sense. But too often, we can find that in our lives as disciples, we are operating by cultural assumptions and not biblical sense and wisdom. And Jesus is so helpful for them and for us. And in verses 43 to 45, he first wants to teach about his suffering. Not the first time he will do so. In Luke 9, this is the second time it occurs. Luke 9, 43, it ends in the second part of the verse saying, But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing... Jesus said the following to his disciples. Now the context here is after a series of important events. You have Jesus confessed as the Christ by Peter earlier in Luke 9. You have the event of the transfiguration on a mountain where his glory is unveiled. Moses and Elijah appear to bear witness. Peter, James, and John are the only disciples among the 12 who witnessed this. And they all come down the mountain afterward. On that next day. It also tells us in Luke 9 that when they came down from the mountain, other disciples had been unable to perform an exorcism for a very desperate father whose son was afflicted and horribly afflicted at that by a demon. Jesus rebukes the evil spirit and drives it from the boy giving the boy back to the father. It tells us in the first part of verse 43, all were astonished at the majesty of God because Jesus was demonstrating divine majesty in his teaching, in his wonders and miracles. This had been the case, not just on that mountain. While it says they were all marveling at everything he was doing, that's pretty inclusive. I don't think this means just what happened on the mountain. His disciples have had the impression over and over again of his greatness and glory. They have seen him still the storm. They have seen him multiply loaves and fish for thousands. They have seen him raise the dead. These disciples have plenty of reason to be awestruck at Jesus. While they were all marveling at everything he was doing, which was so much, only a selection of episodes and teachings given for us in the four gospels, Jesus says the following to his disciples. In verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. I'm pretty sure I've said that kind of thing to my children. Uh, you can imagine how well, something really important here. How should I preface this? Really listen to what I'm about to tell you. Let this really sink in. And Jesus here, as the caring leader and teacher and savior of these people, he says, all right, I've got, I've got something I'm, I'm continuing to predict. I really want you to let this sink in. Let these words sink into your ears. This is reminded New Testament scholars of the book of Exodus. In Exodus 17, it tells us the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Putting something into the ears of someone deeply is so that they will hear and internalize whatever's following. This is no light matter. What's Jesus giving here? A report about what he ate that morning? This has to do with his coming suffering. The, the weight here is preceded by that statement. It's solemn, I think. Let these words sink into your ears. It's very short here. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Sometimes he gives more information than that. Earlier in Luke 9, he talked about his coming suffering and the fact that he would be rejected and the fact that he would be killed and then on the third day be raised again. He will, in the future, speak about what he is doing. Luke 9.44 9, 9, is a very short, condensed description of what Jesus has coming. Him being delivered over. There's something that's divine, though, in that passive. To be delivered over. Ultimately, it's not Judas who hands Jesus over and ultimately it's not the disciples who flee and render him susceptible and vulnerable to the arresting mob ultimately it is the will of the father that the son lay down his life Jesus is going to be delivered over the son of man is about to be delivered this is the plan of God I think that's the tone behind this language the son of man that figure from Daniel 7 the reigning figure The figure in Daniel 7, 13 and 14 who receives authority over nations. The figure who goes to the ancient of days with the clouds of heaven. That figure is going to be handed over. That sounds like the opposite of reigning and vindication. It sounds like he is entering into a kind of oppression or submission to other powers. What is going on here? He will be handed over, delivered into the hands of men. In Daniel 7, 13 and 14, you don't see a description of the suffering of the Son of Man. You have to go to places like Isaiah or Jeremiah or places like the minor prophets to see an anticipation of God delivering someone through suffering and substitutionary work. The Son of Man will be that reigning figure, will be that on the clouds of heaven with the Ancient of Days, having accomplished through suffering salvation for sinners. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And this sounds like unsettling news. We know from the parallel accounts of the Gospels, which Mark 9 and Matthew 17 give us, that the disciples are a little unnerved by this. Um, They, they in fact, according to Matthew 17, 23, hear Jesus' prediction and are greatly distressed. And now if you're one of the 12 disciples, you don't know fully all the details about what will involve the delivering over. But it doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound like something you are eager to have happen. When Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ in Matthew's gospel, Jesus explained what the son of David would have to do, the Christ who would suffer, and Peter began to rebuke him. And Jesus challenged Peter's understanding that he didn't really have in mind the things of God, but Peter had in mind the things of man instead. These disciples don't understand the saying. They are even unsettled by it, as Matthew 17, 23 says. There seems to be even a play on words. The Son of Man given over to men. To their hands, susceptible to whatever those hands would have uh, the will upon him to inflict and impose. I think Jesus is anticipating here the events of his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane including the betrayal of judas in that vicinity he's anticipating his trial before the jews and the romans he's anticipating his crucifixion on the cross it's all of those events that is included here under the umbrella being delivered over into the hands of men in verse 45 it tells us in luke 9 they did not understand this saying It was concealed from them. This doesn't contradict Matthew 17, that they were distressed. It simply means they were distressed and no doubt because they could not fully process or wrap their minds around what he has predicted. They didn't understand this saying fully, for it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were were afraid to ask him about this saying. At the end of verse 45, you get that tone of the disciples being unsettled. There's a, a, a fearful response that they have. They don't like necessarily what they've heard. They don't fully grasp what they've just said. In fact, any emotions that they feel about it are negative. They were afraid to ask him about more. They'll sometimes inquire after a parable. They will ask him privately, what did you mean by teaching this particular thing? But here, they're afraid to inquire more about this saying. We're told in verse 45, language that sounds like the sovereignty of God behind this whole affair. Notice it says it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. This doesn't mean they won't ever perceive it. They do, especially after the resurrection. This, verse 45, seems to suggest that they are gradually coming to understand things about Christ and what he has just said they will not fully grasp until later. Even at his crucifixion, the disciples as a whole are not to be found, only John at the cross with Jesus' mother nearby. The disciples are fearful, and even at the resurrection of the dead, they were not rejoicing at the news of the women but were skeptical the fearfulness and distressed responses of the disciples we can understand this from their perspective we don't want to be too hard on them they've been following this guy for years they've seen the miracles that he does that nothing can withstand him they've seen demons driven out storms made still later he will do more miracles and all of a sudden who's going to get the better of him I'm going to be handed over, delivered over into the hands of men. Why? Nothing can stop you so far. What's going to interrupt this whole momentum that's been building against the forces of darkness and the effects of sin and the curse? You're pronouncing sins forgiven. You're driving out fevers and healing lepers. You're going to be delivered over into the hands of men. They were afraid of this saying and did not inquire. That didn't keep them from talking. We know from Mark nine that they continue to Capernaum when the next uh, verse is reported here. And when they were in the house, they have this following uh, interaction. There was an argument that has arisen from the disciples. Luke nine forty six through forty eight is a lesson about. Status. The the language of status is especially tied to Jesus' claim about being the Son of Man. He's the one who will have a never-ending kingdom and reign over all the nations. And it would be natural for disciples to ponder, if we're following the guy who's the Son of Man, Peter claims he's the Christ, and we would affirm that. So he's the Christ, the Son of David, the one who will rule. I I wonder which of us will be great in that kingdom. As he is the exalted son of man, I wonder in relation to that and in terms of position and status, I wonder where we're going to stand. And this is part of their curiosity. We're told in Luke 9, 46 that an argument arose among them. All right, things getting a little heated, get a little awkward. All of a sudden it might have started out a little civil, a little peaceable, but not everybody agrees on who's going to be the greatest. An argument arose among them as to which of them was... Peter, James, and John might have said, well, you know, did he ask the rest of you guys to go on the mountain to see him transfigured? I didn't think so. You know, even Peter, James, and John have, only, have experienced something that only of those three, with that transfiguration, something the other nine disciples did not experience. So if anybody had some evidence to put onto the table about who Jesus might have nearest him in the position of the kingdom, Peter, James, and John might have something to give. In fact, they might say, well, you know, in terms of greatest of the kingdom, guys, you guys couldn't even drive out that demon. Jesus had to come up and take over where you left off, and you showed yourself powerless and faithless, and he rebuked us. Well, this argument's arising about which of them is the greatest. You know, is it tied to the Son of Man claims from Daniel 7? Is it tied to the transfiguration? Something has got them thinking about the greatness of Jesus and what that means for them, J.C. Ryle is very perceptive here to identify, all right, what's lurking behind all of this argument and, and uh, speculation? Well, it's human pride. It's human pride. Listen to Ryle. He says, of all sins, there's none against which we have such need to watch and pray as pride. It is a pestilence that walketh in darkness and a sickness that destroyeth at noonday. No sin is so deeply rooted in our nature, it cleaves to us like our skin. Okay, well that's a set of images for us to think about from Ryle's perceptive insight into the text. There's pride, exaltation, focus on self and greatness and status that has consumed their thinking. We're not surprised that Jesus has a response here. And a response that will sort of cut through this whole situation like a knife through butter. And he says, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, takes a child and puts him by his side and says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now Jesus wants to address the subject they're thinking about. Greatness in the kingdom. And Jesus is willing for them to recognize Greatness in the kingdom is not greatness in the eyes of the world. Jesus says, for example, and he takes a child. In verse 47, we're we're apparently looking at an entourage traveling with Jesus, and some scholars have said, was this the child that he just healed from demonic possession earlier in Luke 9? It's not clear. But at least the disciples are not the only ones with Jesus traveling. Jesus takes this child. Knowing the reasoning of their hearts, which means they weren't having this as a loud conversation in front of Jesus. Guys, keep your voice down. We don't, we don't, we don't want to arouse his, you know, uh, his response, but here it is. Knowing the reasoning of their hearts, he takes this child. And in the ancient world, the child was someone without any rights. The child was someone who in the eyes of the world had no desirable status. Children would have been easily neglected, easily disregarded in relation to the adults and leaders in their lives, they would have no power. And we can say multiple truths like that about children, even in 2020 and especially in other parts of the world. Here is someone without worldly and social status that would be desirable. And Jesus says, let let me illustrate something for you about greatness. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. It's the one who is not caught up with being seen as significant in the eyes of the world. Jesus wants to talk about that. It's the one who is not craving and seeking after the assertion of status in the eyes of the world. That's what Jesus wants to speak about. And the child is the perfect illustration here. Misunderstandings can sometimes come up with a passage like this. If someone says, is Jesus telling us to be like a child in a way that... Are children humble? Is that what Jesus is telling us? I don't think this is a lesson about humility here as much as it is a lesson about status. We might recognize that children can be very, very selfish. And, and so humility might not be the thing bound up in the heart of the child, at least according to Proverbs. So it seems like a lot of foolishness and a lot of self-involvement uh, that can be naturally in our hearts from childhood on up. What's the significance about the child in particular? The powerlessness. The dependence. The dependence. The lack of rights and status in the eyes of the world. That's what the child represents. And the disciples, in seeking after greatness in the eyes of the world, would look at others in the kingdom, perhaps, from a worldly perspective and say, well, I'm not going to focus there. I'm not going to extend my heart and arms there. I'm going to exclude and overlook. After all, that's just a child. I think Jesus is challenging them to recognize that as disciples of Jesus, we can't evaluate people the way the world does. The world would look at children in Jesus' day and see them as without status and without merit. And I think Jesus is saying to his disciples, I wonder what you see when you look at this child. Because if you see only what the world sees, then you are not thinking in a kingdom way. Jesus says whoever receives this child, and this means the deliberate extension of welcome and hospitality and enjoyment and invitation and embrace to treat as a meaningful, significant person who matters. I think Jesus is saying, you're talking about who's being great in the kingdom. Let's see, do you think this child matters? Because if if that can't be something you're willing to affirm, we've got a long way to go here. Thinking about greatness, he says at the end of the verse, in verse 48, he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And I wonder if the disciples are so eager to be seen as the one who is great that they are going to be failing to process the lesson that Jesus is giving them. He's calling them to see people the way he does. Now that's the challenge. That is the ever-present challenge in the life of the disciple, to see other people the way Jesus does. And Jesus did not look at people and say, well, this one isn't worthy, and this one is easily looked over, and this one is you know insignificant. People were significant to Jesus, even if from the categories of the world, there were social or political reasons to exclude them, to overlook them, to say that doesn't matter. Now, why would people operate at all in that way? Because there is this this bent within humanity that we can go after others that we might think would make us look in a particular light. That this particular person, because of who they are, what they can bring to the table, there can be a sense in which reaching out and extending that word and extending that hand can be done so as long as we can see what we can get from that. And yet from children in the ancient world, what could be gained? And I think this is Jesus's way of saying Well, that's the very point then. Loving them, welcoming them, receiving them because they are people made in the image of God. People made in the image of God and therefore valuable. It's a way of evaluating people from the eyes of Jesus and not the eyes of the world. Later in Luke chapter 18, we see that the disciples have not fully processed this. Luke 18 tells us in verse 15, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked the people. And Jesus called them and said, let the children come to me and don't hinder them. For such belo- to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The the disciples then are thinking about status and power and worthiness and position in ways that are out of step with Jesus's authority and teaching. He wants them to be willing to be low, willing to not be seen in a regarded way by the world, be willing to be seen as the least among people. And if they're not willing to do that, then it may indicate that the people they are willing to receive is motivated by desire of what they gain from that kind of recognition. I think the book of James illustrates this in a poignant way. James chapter 2 speaks about receiving people in the household of God. For example, James tells us in James 2.1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Four, and he illustrates this, let's say a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. If you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, oh, you sit here in a good place. And while you say to the poor man, eh, you stand over there or, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and became judges with evil thoughts? Oh, my. Jesus is just penetrating the heart right there saying, I wonder if you see people simply the way the world does evaluating people in terms of worth and position and authority and what they can bring and how they appear and what that can do for you if you receive them. Listen, my beloved brothers, James says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And neighbor is not defined as only the rich or only the poor, or only the noteworthy or only those that the world would not pay attention to. Jesus wants us to be those who are disciples of Christ, seeing others as he does. It's a kingdom mentality. I think it's counterintuitive. It undermines the, the categories of the world. The disciples are to be like Jesus and Jesus embraces people that the world would consider unworthy. This is what the disciples are hung up on later in Luke 18. All these children are coming to Jesus and the disciples are rebuking these parents for bringing them as if they're bothering Jesus. And Jesus is saying, essentially, why do you think this shouldn't happen? Because of who they are, where they're from, how old they are. Just think for a moment about how bad it is to see people solely in those categories. Jesus is wanting to push against that. And whoever receives this child in my name receives me. So here's what Jesus wants us to recognize. The way we treat other people should be of the mindset of thinking, what if this person were Jesus? How would I treat Jesus? Whoever receives me... I'm sorry, receives this child in my name, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. I think we'd all agree. This is a powerful, convicting, sobering set of teachings and illustrations where Jesus wants us to be Christ-like and not worldly in our category uh, of thinking about people. It's easy to think about other people Using comparative categories. And that's what James is introducing in James 2. Thinking about the categories of rich and poor and great and insignificant from the eyes of the world. If we treat other people based on... and Treat people well and extend that receiving, welcoming hand. Because of who they are and how they look. And especially what treating them could mean for us in response. Then Jesus has hard words for us about seeing people as he does. Right? Verses 49 and 50 are an illustration of the disciples failing in this area. In verses 49 and 50, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we try to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Now, Jesus used the illustration of a child, but he wasn't limiting the application of this to children. But people who seem to be excluded for whatever reason. And the disciples have suddenly engaged in verses 49 and 50 in an act of exclusion. They've drawn a, a boundary. Said, us, not you. And Jesus has a strong word for this. John is the one named in verse 49. Verse 49. More often than not, when you see a disciple named, Peter is the speaker. Occasionally, you see John included, and he's one of the ones here. In Mark 9, we see the parallel to Luke. Luke's account is a little shorter here. But John says, Master. So we saw somebody casting out demons. Let's, on the face of it, recognize that needs to happen in Jesus' day. You've got demonic possession. So people becoming free and liberated from demonic possession, well, this would be something we would think we'd want to encourage. We saw somebody casting out demons and in your name. Here is a person that that seems to be operating with a view toward giving the authority and glory to Jesus Christ for what he's doing. We don't know who this person was in verse 49. Casting out demons in your name is what this person is doing. Now John says, here's his report. We tried to stop him. We tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. I think this is John's very honest way, though misinformed way of saying, well, he wasn't one of the 12. He wasn't in our circle. So we said to him, you stop that. We tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Well, if Jesus talked about receiving people in his name, here this exorcist is seeking to treat those afflicted by demonic possession and doing so in the name of Jesus. These disciples did not receive this man. They did the opposite of what Jesus would have commended in verse 48. John's honesty is apparent. We tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. The man's lack of association with the disciples, as one writer put it, that's what caused them to try to stop his ministry of exorcism. Can you imagine? Here are people that are being delivered in the name of jesus this is a man casting out demons in your name and the disciples say we think you should stop that this is reminded new testament scholars of a situation with moses in the old testament book of numbers the spirit of god fell upon elders in numbers 11. And in addition to the particular number of appointed elders, there were a couple other people in the camp named Eldad and Medad. Here's what happened. Numbers 11. There were two men who remained in the camp, one named Eldad, one named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out of the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua said, "My Lord, Moses, stop them. And Moses said, are you jealous for my sake? Oh, would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. Moses' response was probably not what Joshua and another young man had expected. But Moses recognized that if the Lord was ministering in a powerful way beyond the particular number of elders on whom the spirit had come, then that was the discretion of the Lord. And not something that the people should say, but from our perspective, we think we should stop that. And ironically then, the disciples were trying to stop someone. Now, there is a deeper irony here because these disciples failed to exercise a demon from someone earlier in Luke 9. These are the very people whom Jesus addressed with a rebuke that sounded like he was speaking to a wilderness generation from the Old Testament that were acting not in dependence upon him, not in faith toward him, but faithless and twisted. And Jesus spoke that way in Luke 9, in verse 41. O faithless and twisted generation. So they had failed to cast out a demon in Jesus' name, and yet they feel confident enough that they can stop other people from doing that. Jesus says, no, that's not the way this works this unnamed exorcist, working in the name of Jesus. We're not told if Jesus has interaction and authority bestowal upon this man. The disciples are too concerned that he doesn't follow with us. Therefore, we tried to stop him. In verse 50, Jesus says, don't stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. And I think this remark is very sobering as readers, where we recognize there are many people ministering in the name of Christ around the world who might not be identified closely with the circles of influence and gatherings and even denominations that we are most accustomed to but let's not make the greater error of John that just because people are ministering in the name of Jesus but aren't doing it with us that they shouldn't be doing it at all there may be particular prohibitions and standards and doctrines that we want to hash out with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but there will be a lot of people in heaven besides Reformed Baptists. So I'm just recognizing a truth and principle that the ministry in the name of Jesus that this man is operating in, here these disciples say, but he's not following with us. And I think that one application here is the danger of tribalism. The danger of assuming that because you are in a particular circle of influences and and surrounded by people who are of similar convictions, that somebody who may not hold all of those convictions that you do, that there must be no way Christ could be honored in or using their ministry. We may be pleasantly surprised. Now, again, there are primary doctrines that define believer from unbelievers. I'm talking about within the larger scope of people who claim and confess the name of Jesus, but whom in other secondary or tertiary issues we can have theological disagreements with. Let's not be those who want to draw such a tight boundary that we would say like John to somebody else what Jesus would then respond with a rebuke to us. You don't tell them this. Don't stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. I think the disciples need to recognize that the people holding the nets to gather fishers and to be fishers of men, to gather those um, in, in uh, evangelistic and missions work, those who are holding the nets are broader than the 12. Think logically for a moment about the number of these disciples. Would the disciples assume? that nobody else is able to teach and preach and work in the name of Jesus unless they're among those who are immediately following Jesus, especially among the twelve? Well, that's not going to spread the good news about Jesus very far, very long. This is a very narrow way of thinking, and I think an overly narrow and unnecessary way of thinking. There are plenty of people who would believe in what are called the historic and cardinal tenets of Christianity across the world, who might not be like us in other respects. And the Lord in his grace and in his love and long suffering will use them. As we learn more and as we know better, we seek to do better and be ever reforming and ever bringing our lives and teaching and conduct to the word of God. But let us not assume that because others are not where we are on these issues or believe all the things that we do, that maybe we could say like what John does, we would want to tread very carefully. We would want to tread very carefully. J.C. Ryle, very astute here in his observation, he says thousands of people in every period of church history have spent their lives copying John's mistake. They have labored to stop every man who will not work for Christ in their way from working for Christ at all. They have imagined in their petty self-conceit that no man can be a soldier of Christ unless he wears their uniform and fights in their regiment. So let's just say out loud tonight that the followers of Christ around the world are not our enemies. Followers of Jesus are not your enemy. And I mean true followers of Christ, who confess the truth about Jesus, who know the truth of his word about who he is and what he has done. These truths that would mark a believer from an unbeliever. Followers of Jesus are not enemies of the church of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, we war against flesh and blood and principalities that seek to distort the gospel, support false teaching, and keep the blindness and hardness of hearts perpetual but the followers of Jesus are not our enemies we may we may have disagreements theologically where there may be this denomination or that denomination so that people have the freedom to practice what they believe about baptism and the Lord's Supper and church government and and other issues that can rightly divide denominations where you recognize the church has to be conducted in some way and we have to have some position on baptism and and so these these issues are hashed out biblically with the saints But they are not our enemies. We should pray for them. That they would hold firmly to the gospel. That they would love the lost. And that Christ would be honored in their lives as they study the word of God. And hopefully, like we want for ourselves, to be found ever more faithful to the truth of Jesus Christ. We will share the new heavens and new earth with them. Tribalism can bring great destruction to evangelicals. And I think we see this even on a political level now in the United States. I think the idea of of circling around your particular corners and viewing other people not as those who have live disagreements with which we should converse and hash out and and think through with civil discussions, but rather viewing them as enemies. There's there's the good and versus, you know, the, the enemies. This can seep easily into the church of Jesus Christ. And it can affect the way we view fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We we ought not be surprised that there are people who know the truth about Jesus and believe the truth about Jesus. But their view on women in ministry might be different from ours. Their view on the Lord's Supper and baptism might be different than ours. Their view on leadership in a church and the structure of that might be different from ours. Their view on the Holy Spirit and the the work of ministry and evangelism and missions. There might be a series of disagreements, but they are not our enemies. Jesus says, whoever is not against you is for you. They're ministering in his name. This should give us, Lord willing, humility in the word love for fellow professing Christians and an eagerness to have conversations even in which theologically we may find ourselves in disagreement of secondary or tertiary or other issues. It's not that these issues don't matter, but they don't create enemies of the church of Jesus Christ. And the attitude of John does lurk in that area, I fear. And I think this is why he receives such a strong rebuke from Jesus himself. In other words, Jesus didn't say to John, I am so glad you did that. The last thing we want are people who are not us out there ministering in my name. Thank you, John. Everybody, round of applause. Instead, John probably felt taken aback around with the other disciples who may have shared John's view. He says, after all, in verse 48 I'm sorry, verse 49, we saw someone, and we tried to stop them. And uh, afterwards, John might have thought, man, I wish somebody else would have reported that instead of me. Because here, the others may have joined in with that same attitude. But they all needed to hear the gracious and firm truth of Jesus Christ. Don't stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So here you have Jesus in these verses tonight, and we'll close. He is teaching about his Son of Man status. That he has this delivering over to the hands of men that's to come. But what does this mean in his kingdom about those who are great or, or, or small? Well, he's talking about thinking about people not in worldly categories. Not in the social political breakdowns and evaluations that the world does. He wants people to see others through the lenses that he is offering. And that means there is, there is no such thing as an insignificant person. There's no such person of an age or a background or a race or an economic status who doesn't matter. They matter because Jesus Christ loves sinners and died for them and people are made in the image of God. Nobody is insignificant. Nobody is insignificant and we need to treat people in the name of Jesus as if we are receiving Jesus himself with our words and with our welcome. In doing so, I think this honors and dignifies image bearers. And when these are followers of Jesus and and we are able to fellowship with them and rejoice in our common Savior, we recognize that our fellow Christians are not our enemies. We love the name of Christ and we're seeking to follow him faithfully.